0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to this new episode. My name is Sarah, and this is Amsterdamus, the podcast that introduces you to amazing women from Amsterdam. My guest for this episode is a bio-based designer and architectural technologist. She is originally from the US, has lived in Japan and Denmark, and is now located in Delft. The material she is working with has already been used in the Middle Ages by the Vikings in Denmark. Unfortunately, nowadays, it's almost forgotten. Now my guest is working on its revival. Welcome, Katherine Larsen. Thanks for being with me today. Hey, Sarah. Thank you for having me. You are currently a master's student of architecture at the University of Delft. What brought you to the Netherlands?
1: So basically I was pretty lucky because Delft was the only architecture school to accept me in a master's degree. Um, I did my undergraduate in architectural technology so that essentially blacklisted me from many master's programs in Europe because architectural technology is not seen as the same thing as architecture. So, um, with the pandemic going on and everything, when I got accepted to Delft, I was like, oh, I guess I'm moving to the Netherlands.
0: Already at a young age, you moved to Japan. Is this where your interest in local construction techniques started?
1: Yeah, so basically when I was 18, um, I moved to Japan uh, in a gap year, and I wanted to study Japanese uh, intensively. So um, I ended up living with a host family in Chiba. And um, I ended up sitting around sketching everything I saw and sitting and watching construction sites. So one of the things that I realized is that they still use a very specific type of wood joinery when building houses. And that's inspired from uh, thousands and thousands of years of this history. Um, And they created this wood joinery um, in temples and shrines so that when an earthquake hits, for example, a pagoda will sway with the earthquake and the joinery will allow for that so that it doesn't collapse. And the same technique and construction method is used today, not just in houses, but also um, in larger buildings. So one of the best examples I can think of is a Sakasa sky tree. So I found that super, super inspirational. Um, I ended up going back to the States and starting architecture school soon after that. And I then had a full year of studio classes and very intensive history classes and a sustainability course. And in that sustainability course, we were learning a lot about traditional um, methods of fabrication and using uh, mud construction, for example. So all of this became the groundwork for my work now today. Um, Unfortunately, after a year, um, I could no longer afford architecture school in the States. A year cost about $68,000. So I ended up transferring to Denmark to study architectural technology.
0: And in Denmark you came across a very special construction material. Which one was that and how did you find it?
1: So in Denmark I had a lot of free time while I was studying and I used that time to basically go around and, and study the world around me. Um, And I ended up participating in this little competition for the school and I was trying to come up with a concept and that's when I found out about uh, eelgrass. So eelgrass is a type of seagrass, it is not a seaweed um, because it has roots and it's originally a plant whereas seaweed has something called a holdfast where it can stick to anything like a rock for instance. But basically eelgrass is material. was seen as a seaweed historically because it just washed up and people would use it on the island of Lesu to thatch huge roofs. So I found that so fascinating, this concept of building with seaweed essentially. Um, and I just wanted to know how the heck can you build a seaweed? Uh, so, um, I, I proposed for that competition, a way that you could prefabricate and build with it. Um, at that time, uh, I, I really honestly did not understand how you built with it, and I realized that all these sources were basically in Danish, so if I wanted to figure out how they were going to build with this material, I would need to learn Danish, and so it became a process of learning more Danish and figuring out how they built these houses, um, and I ended up deciding to focus my thesis on it. So, um, one of the things of the traditionally thatched eelgrass roof is that it takes tons and tons of eelgrass to make, and it's very labor intensive. So, I was thinking, what if we reimagined this technology, and how would it look like uh, for architecture today? So, I wanted to come up with a prefabricated concept of a panel that could be applied on roof and facade. And um, that's basically because the more I found out about eelgrass, the more I realized it's this like incredible wonder material that exists all over the world um, before uh, it was affected by a wasting disease in the 1930s. So for example, in the US, it was used as an insulation material um, in a, an actual bat fabricated from the late 19th century. And you know, it was used in China also as a roofing material, and even in the Netherlands to help build dikes. So there is this incredible history of this material. And you know, I just wanted to create an incentive so we could start using it again. And um, I mean, that's really the incredible thing about eelgrass is that it's rot resistant, it's naturally fire resistant because of the salt in the in the in the seaweed, in the seagrass, Um, and uh, it's also as insulative as modern mineral wool, so I mean, wow, what a fantastic material! Why aren't we using it? Um, so, so that's what I've really been working on, and I didn't stop um, after school. I kept working with uh, creating these, pa- working with creating these prefabricated panels and testing them, um, and I started to develop a relationship with uh, local seaweed farmers in Denmark and also locals from Lesu. So it just ended up being this really incredible
0: experience. You just called it a wonder material, and you explained that it has been used in so many different countries. How is it possible that we are not using it anymore today? How did this knowledge get lost?
1: You know, the building industry used to be an industry where it was a very heavy craft and trade industry, and knowledge was passed down from person to person. Um, And... I would say the way we build today fundamentally is based off of how we started building in the 1950s. So at the beginning of uh, the 1900s, there might've only been 20 building materials in existence. These days with fabrication, we have thousands and thousands and thousands. And we want everything, you know, we want to be able to ship you know, specific products from China because they're cheaper and we want to be able to ship, you know, specific tiles from Italy because they're beautiful. Um, So our whole culture of building actually changed fundamentally in the 20th century. And in addition to this, um, like I mentioned before, there was a massive wasting disease. There was a, a slime mold that attacked eelgrass in the 1930s and there is still a lot of eelgrass in existence but what happened is it fundamentally changed the seabed patterns around the world so where it started washing up was different from where it was washing up before and for example it stopped washing up on lesu entirely so lesu actually if it wasn't for the past 10 years they would not have any seaweed thatch roofs left There has been a huge preservation effort because one master thatcher, Henning Johansson, was so tired of replacing these beautiful seaweed roofs with regular thatch that he basically went on a one-man crusade to figure out, okay, how can we learn to rebuild these and how can we preserve these? And so with him and his community in Lesu, he really rallied to start rebuilding these roofs and retrained himself, actually to build these roofs it's it's two things i think i think the reason why eelgrass um, is no longer commonly used is because of that wasting disease and i think also too i think it has to do a lot with our change in our building culture as well where now craft labor is seen as prohibitively expensive or building traditionally is seen as a negative because people associate it with a certain rustic, boring style. Um, Some people, of course, really love that. Um, But, you know, historically, architects have always looked at vernacular techniques with some sort of derision because these are houses that were not designed by architects, so they were not officially architecture. And this is a debate that has been going on for centuries. What do we define architecture? Is it architecture if no architect was involved in building it? And of course, I think that that is architecture, you know, um, so, so then, yeah, that has a lot to do with that.
0: Of course, also, nowadays, the costs are a very important factor, as you mentioned, the cheaper products that are imported from China. But now when I'm thinking about beaches in the Netherlands, I think of huge piles of seaweed or seagrass just lying around and going to waste. Wouldn't that be the cheapest option to just use this as it's already there? Or is it a certain type of seagrass that can't be used for constructions as you imagine them?
1: So I think most seagrasses, as long as they're properly prepared, can be used as insulation material. Um, Typically, thatching if you want to thatch with eelgrass um, you need actually building great quality and there's this whole thing about it I was not aware of it but not all eelgrass is equal you need um, you do need like a, a nice quality of eelgrass to be able to thatch with it it's a little bit more expensive because of the labor involved with harvesting it and storing it so at the moment it is cheaper to use other insulation products Um, And that's what stops it, I think, from being so mainstream right now. But when I spoke with the seaweed farmers in Denmark, they were basically hoping that other people would be inspired to start their own harvesting and farming business um, so that it would would become cheaper overall. I mean, there is really maybe one or two seaweed farms um, dedicated to eelgrass farming in Denmark. Um, And they have actually set up an export business with Germany Um, so that uh, Germany can use this eelgrass as insulation and that's just based off of harvesting from a few beaches in Denmark like we don't regularly harvest from all the beaches in Denmark so there's thousands of tons that are going to waste of course some seagrass and seaweed is it's important to leave it on the beach because it is actually like a plant nursery for um, herrings and fish and stuff they lay their eggs in it so you don't want to remove all of it but when there's a massive mountain of it um, and people want to enjoy the beach a lot of governments clear it and put it in a landfill so I think the argument then is we can create a, a sustainable model for harvesting it leaving some on the beach but taking some of it and then using that to create buildings and
0: insulate buildings. I have to admit, what you're telling me now sounds almost too good to be true. Are there any potential downsides to see wheat as a building material?
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the downsides, like I mentioned, is definitely the price point, because conventional insulation that we use today, synthetic insulation, is so cheap that it's like, do you really want to invest in this material just because it's better for the environment? And you know, that's where it's really important that governments start to have carbon taxes in place because eelgrass is carbon neutral. In some cases, if you're literally using it on site, it absorbs carbon dioxide in buildings. So then it makes the building carbon dioxide negative. So, I mean, wow, okay, that sounds really good. So the price point is definitely a sticker for people. The other... um. I think the other disadvantage is that it doesn't come in a bat form automatically. So um, to process it into a bat, there was um, some people in in Denmark that tried to put that together. But the way uh, production is set up, to 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 make these um, installation bats, the only binder that they can use with the machines is a type of plastic binder. So you're taking a really great natural resource and you're shredding it up and you're adding uh, some bits of plastic to it. Um, so uh, how sustainable is that? You know, that's an issue in itself that has to do with production. The bats, of course, can then be reused, remelted, and re-put together with the eelgrass um, over time, uh, which is a circular uh, concept. But, you know, so there's so there's different layers to the sustainability issue. so the the loose eelgrass in itself um, makes it difficult to build with um unless you're using prefabricated uh, wall systems. And I would say beyond that, the big, disadvantage and the big warning is that if people wanted to scale this up way too fast they could end up damaging the ecosystem so um you know there are certain governments that are really focused on reseeding the eelgrass beds it does use the dead eelgrass but i mean we know people are greedy we know that like if there's a huge economic advantage to something people are going to abuse it So I am worried that if it did take off really largely that, you know, people would resort to um, ripping it out of the seabed instead of waiting for it to wash up or, you know, removing all of the habitats, um, clearing it entirely from beaches. So I think that if it is something that is going to be um, a product or a thing in the future, it's something that has to be very closely regulated. Um, and I would like more regulations for building materials too, in general.
0: You are currently working on seagrass thatches that can be used on the roof of a building or on the facades. Are those still prototypes or are they already used in international projects?
1: They're definitely still prototypes. Um... That that brings me to my next point. Um, one of the issues that I found when I was working with trying to scale down eelgrass thatching is that uh, it becomes very susceptible to wind. So a lot of my testing installations then began to explore how the wind would actually affect these panels and how uh, how long they could last. And all my panels really weren't able to last more than a year without being sort of torn, torn apart uh, to pieces. Um, what I found, too, when I was experimenting with all of this is that the building industry is unbelievably conservative. And even though I was working with something that had so much history, a lot of people were really um, eh, not enthused about it, and um, they were like, "Oh,, um, it's smelly. we think it's gross. We don't want to use it. Um, it's ugly. I got that a lot. Um it's ugly, it's ugly, it's ugly and i i realized that um if it's ever going to be used commonly as a product one of the things that we need to do is we need to change people's perception of eelgrass in general so i started exploring more with um, aesthetics and i started experimenting more with um, using it in an interior context so i've been basically experimenting with its uses um, and its abilities as an acoustic panel inside. Um, And it's a very artisanal uh, study, I guess you could say. But um, I'm looking to see how this like material could be enhanced um, aesthetically while still using these sorts of uh, traditional thatching methods. And I also experimented with dyeing it with natural dyes. So there were a lot of problems. (laughs) I basically realized that I don't necessarily want to be an entrepreneur. I want to be a designer and Um, One of the great things that comes out of all this is that I have all this research and I have all this testing done that nobody else has really attempted. And then I can share that with people so that hopefully other people will be inspired to then improve things and, um, you know, see it as a viable resource. So that's more of the direction I've been going lately. I do think it would be a fantastic building a product or building material Um, but I think you would have to layer it maybe with some mud plaster or with netting um, to basically make it a little bit more wind resistant. Also I'd just like to add for the record that eelgrass is not smelly especially if it's um, if it's processed correctly. If it's left to rot on the beach like it smells nasty but if it's um, properly processed for buildings it kind of smells like hay.
0: This is really interesting that people seem to care so much about the aesthetics, because in the past, people used seagrass to stuff their mattresses, or it was used as an insulation in the wall of a house where nobody could see it. So what would it matter now, what it smells like or what it looks like?
1: I know, it's, it's, it's really interesting um, <laughs> that that was a lot of the feedback that I got, um, And I I, I do want to actually use a lot of my work to begin to break that down. Um, Before COVID, I would actually have a lot of these public installations that I built, but I would also go around to different countries and I would encourage people to touch the panels that I made and to smell them. Um, And then I would say, you know, this is is basically what we know as seaweed. And people were shocked. Um, I think we need more of that. To be able to change people's perceptions, and it's so funny because, y- you know, people people back in the Middle Ages on Lesu they didn't have a choice. They were they didn't have any other building materials. It was use seaweed or have no roof. <laughs> so, so, um, so that's how that evolved. But of course now we're spoiled for choice. But I think with the whole climate crisis situation, I think we should start looking more seriously at materials like these and taking them more seriously again.
0: You said earlier that the entire industry is rather conservative. And this reminded me of a video that I have seen of you as a speaker at an event in 2019, where you said that the entire building industry and architecture is mostly male-dominated. However, this has been completely different in the past on the Danish island, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, um, it was the women's role to thatch these roofs, and um, they actually changed the way these roofs were thatched fundamentally. They used to be uh, just piled on top of the roof structure, and there used to be just like a pin in the roof that would hold the seaweed in place. Um, around I think the seventeen hundreds or sixteen hundreds, I'm not sure. Uh. A lot of the men would go off the island to be sailors uh, for income and stuff and the women then had to uh, Thatch these roofs and a lot of them had this material knowledge and experience with spinning wool So they treated the eelgrass almost exactly like they were spinning wool and it's because of their material knowledge um, that they changed this construction method and I just find that so fascinating if we actually look in history a lot of women have been uh, key key roles in design especially Um, i'm actually currently studying the role of danish women in design but because they were um, they were um, supposed to do specific crafts um, their work was not uh, held to the same level um, of honor as the men's work was so you had women being master weavers women being master. Uh, textile creators and women being master ceramicists, and them not receiving recognition for for the amazing work that they were creating. And instead, you know, is a, a the building industry was the manly field. so it's it's created this divide, but I, I really think that it takes um a lot of, uh, strengths to then go back in history and recognize women's work and then see how that actually can play a role in architecture. You know, it's all about material knowledge. And I just find that so fascinating and inspirational.
0: How was this during your own studies at university? Did you also experience an imbalance between male and female students? And how is the current situation in Denmark these days? You mentioned a handful of seagrass farms that exist now. Are there female employees or are there female farmers these days?
1: So it's interesting because statistics show that school in general, for architecture school now and design school, is mostly female-dominated. In in fact, um, I studied in the international line, and we were mostly women. We were it was mostly. Um, women in the line for the international line but the Danish line was fundamentally different because it was a majority of ex-craftsmen that are looking to retrain for a nicer desk job rather than having to be out in the field Um, and one of the ways to be admitted to the program is to have a craftsman history. So the Danish line had a completely different culture um, and had a completely different uh, background than the international line did and we only had about two to three Danish people in my class. The way Delft does it is completely different. They try to get a mixture of Dutch and international students in every single class and uh, the entire school is just international for the master's program so there is no separate uh, Dutch line and what ends up happening is you end up being able to study a lot more um, about Dutch traditions and Dutch culture from your classmates and that was really something I was missing in Denmark with the seaweed farms themselves, um, they are mostly family-run, so women do play a, a strong role in that. Um, I know uh, Kurt, his seaweed farm, Muntang, is, is is run by him and his wife and their kids. And his wife then takes the eelgrass and she makes uh, yoga yoga cushions out of them. And it, it's very much uh, family-made, family-loved <laughs> business, and it's very cozy. I, you know, we have this expectation that it is male-dominated. And at least in an academic level um, in Europe, architecture tends to be more female-dominated. But then when we go out to, into practice, something changes. So in Denmark, it's a little bit more equal with representation of women in the workplace. But when it comes to representation in awards or recognition, it's just men, 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 men men's work is held up kind of as the epitome of recognition. You know, I have I have a book of contemporary architecture and I just thought, you know, for fun, like, oh, let's try and go in and see how many female architects are actually mentioned in this book. And there were no, (laughs) no solo female architects. The only there was a couple of uh, firms where one or two partners were women and and that was it. And it was very (laughs) disappointing that even though now women are making strides in academia, our work is still not being recognized on the same level, at the same high level as men's work. Hopefully
0: your work is going to change that now. I have one question left. You already said earlier that the next step will be to make your thatches more wind resistant and that you're currently also researching Danish women in architecture. What else are your plans and projects for 2021? I think as a consequence of
1: my work with eelgrass, I also began experimenting a lot more with kelp and also um, composites with kelp. So one of the things that I'm hoping to do is I'm hoping to explore these materials in in a design application. So I'm really hoping that I can get somewhere into a, a lab setting or a a place that isn't my apartment so that I can actually build something because I really want to do these small-scale furniture tests actually. You know we mentioned that eelgrass was used as upholstery material so I want to explore this further and I've developed a way to turn kelp actually into a leather material. So these are the sorts of things I want to experiment with creating forms small-scale. And then I hope eventually for my thesis to be able to propose a large scale project where I'm taking these materials um, and combining them with traditional fabrication to create a proposal where we can use seaweed farming as a resource to create architecture. And that includes eelgrass as well. And I want to build like a prototype of what like this futuristic room made out of seaweed would be like with seaweed materials. So that's what I'm working on at the moment, Um, and of course I have all these other things running on the side as well. And it's getting a little crazy, it's getting a little weird, but I think that's why you go to architecture school. I'm definitely um, exploring (laughs) with pushing the limits and then trying to rein it back in and trying to create something that might be a bit more practical, even if it sounds a bit crazy.
0: Thank you so much, Catherine, for being with me today. I learned a lot about your very interesting work and I wish you all the best for this upcoming year.
1: Thank you so much, Sarah. You too.
0: And this also marks the end of today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Stay tuned if you want to meet more amazing women of Amsterdam. And please don't forget to follow Amsterdamus on Instagram. Thanks and take care, everybody. Bye.